Good morning, everyone. Uh, so today's Bible reading is from Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 1 to 11. And it can be found on page, put my glasses on, I might be able to see better, 831. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Thanks, Andrew. You hear me? Awesome. Morning, everyone. <laughs> Let's get this clip on. Uh, I want to start by telling you about a certain period of my life where I had a mortal enemy. Yeah, <laughs> One, uh, what, uh, my cousin's family grew up in Strathalbyn and we'd spend um, weekends and the holidays travelling to their house and mucking around with them. They lived kind of on the outskirts of Strathalbyn and um, Daniel and I, my cousin, we would spend kind of the days riding around the dusty roads um, and we had a friend, Elijah, who lived quite close to Daniel, but just up the road a bit. So Daniel and I would ride out of his house, kind of bump onto the dusty road, and as soon as we did, our hearts would start beating. Um, we'd, we'd continue riding up the road towards Elijah's house, and we'd start sweating. And I was a chubby little boy, but I was sweating not because I was unfit, but more because um, this mortal enemy, a, a terrifying threat lay ahead. Well, as soon as we turned down Elijah's road, this yapping would begin. And this, ha- this is actually the house. I got this from Google Street View. <laughs> this house in Strath, there would be a Jack Russell that would be bounding up and down that fence. Like you can, your must little Jack Russell just pu- pushing itself up and down the fence and yapping at us as soon as it saw us riding. And as we rode and then got parallel to the house, the crazy little dog would 
do this psychopathic wriggle under the gate and come bounding towards us at full speed and actually nip us on our ankles as we were riding. So you can imagine at the bottom of the pedal you were freaking out because this dog was, would actually nip us at the ankles. And obviously it would just be luck whether it was Daniel or I that, got, that actually got nipped. So the fear of this little animal on the way to Elijah's house often was the decider of whether or not we went to Elijah's house in the first place. In the part of the letter to the Philippians that we're looking at today, Paul warns them about some dogs that want to tear them apart. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And so the first thing I want us to remember from this part of the letter is this, that rejoicing in Christ is a safeguard for my faith against the dogs that want to tear me apart. So it'd be really good if we walked away remembering that, that when I rejoice in Christ, my faith is safeguarded. At this point in the letter, Paul warns the Philippians of a possible threat to them, and he points to the solution. He actually mentions the solution before... He gives them the solution before he even mentions the threat. If you look at verse 1, he says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Paul says that rejoicing in the Lord will provide a safeguard, a protection against the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh. When I read this, there's two things that pop into my mind. First of all, what kind of psychopaths are coming for the Philippians if they're called mutilators of the flesh? It's a pretty intense description. And why would rejoicing in the Lord stop that sort of threat? Well, let's begin by understanding who this threat is. Paul uses some heated language to talk about a group of people who have been trouble in the past and continue to prowl around like dogs. He calls them evildoers in verse 2. This group of people claim to be Christian, but they're pushing a message that actually opposes Christ. In Acts 15, we read an account of Paul and Silas meeting with the church leaders in Jerusalem. The apostle Peter was there and James was there. The meeting was called because they needed to figure out a response to some people who were saying that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish believers, needed to obey the Mosaic law to be true Christians. And these people, these dogs, were slinking around targeting Gentiles. In Paul's words, they were ordering them to carry a yoke, as in the yoke of the law, that not even the Jews themselves could handle. And Paul was saying that pushing these requirements onto Gentile Christians was evil. He then calls them mutilators of the flesh. It's because these people went so far as to convince the Gentile Christians that they needed to be circumcised to be sure that they were acceptable to God, which is pretty painful to begin with, but worse, it's just total heresy. And so Paul then calls them dogs. And just in case you've got a mental image of a Labrador bounding towards you in slow motion, you know, in a field of grass, that's not the image that Paul's going for. Imagine instead that same Labrador, mangy, (laughs) mangy, flea-bitten, rabid foam around the mouth and uttering, like snarling at you as it's coming at you. These dogs wanted to tear them apart. The way this group was targeting and picking off Gentile Christians was animal behaviour. 
and they posed a threat to the Philippian salvation. (laughs) So given that was a threat the Philippians were facing, how on earth would rejoicing in the Lord counter that threat? Well, keep that question in your mind. We're told that it does provide a safeguard against threats, but we'll see why it provides a safeguard a little bit later. At this point, you may be thinking, this is kind of interesting from a historical point of view, but these dogs pools are talking about, they're pretty well extinct now, right? No one's made me feel like I need to be circumcised, and no one's made me feel guilty for eating pork. I ate a lot of bacon at bloke's camp yesterday. Um, you know, the last time we had Friday curry night and I boiled a goat's in, goat in its mother's milk, no one popped out and, and told me that I'm not actually a true Christian believer. It's unlikely that that's happened to anyone here. But have you ever been felt that Christ on his own is not enough? I can bring to mind many messages that suggest you need more than Christ alone for salvation. Have you ever felt or heard that what will make you right in God's eyes is maybe Christ plus the law or Christ plus right doctrine, Christ plus speaking in tongues, there's Christ plus amazing spiritual experiences or Christ plus true baptism? We've got heaps of them, Christ plus prosperity, Christ plus good works, Christ plus acceptable church involvements or even Christ plus the right passions and feelings. In fact, personally, I don't even need someone else to deceive me. Like, I'm so used to fixing things myself, and the idea of self-improvement really appeals to me. So the message that I need to add something, that I can add something to Christ, is really tempting. But as soon as I look inwards towards what I can do, I start to, be- to doubt my own salvation. So what's the solution? What will keep us safe from ancient and modern dogs that threaten to tear down our salvation? Well, this brings us to the second thing that I want us to remember from this part of the letter. I've been given everything already in Christ, so the alternatives are rubbish. You know, the alternatives are clearly rubbish when we look at Christ and see what we have in Him. With that little mutt of a Jack Russell I was telling you about, I couldn't see any solution for getting past him. He really did terrify me. It wasn't until my wise older cousin Sam explained the solution that the dog became a non-issue. Sam told me that when we were riding past that house, we needed to just look straight ahead to Elijah's house and ride as fast as we could. Because if, as soon as we look down and you see this dog about to like, jump at you and nip your ankles, you take your foot off the pedal and you begin to slow down and the stupid dog has even more chances to nip you. Um, the solution for us was to be so focused on Elijah's house, so focused on our goal that we'd just sail past the dog. We'd hear it, but just ignore it and just go on to the house. It's a bit like what Paul is saying to the Philippians here. The dogs are offering an alternative to Christ. But when we understand just what we've been given in Christ, just how awesome he is, the alternatives just look like rubbish. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 8. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Paul's saying that knowing Christ has changed him and how he views the world completely. Look at what used to matter to Paul in verse 4. What mattered was that he was a perfect Jew. Uh, With his heritage, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
His doctrine, he was a Pharisee. With his passion, he had great zeal. With his keeping of the law, he was faultless. He was as good as you could get. If anyone could consider themselves an exemplar of Judaism, it was definitely Paul. If ever there was a reason to be confident that you'd done all you could do to be acceptable to God, Paul had reason to be confident in himself. But all of that, Paul now calls rubbish. How can he say that? How could he just walk away from his life's work? Well, let me tell you another story. When I was 13 or 14, I remember spending Saturdays breaking rocks. Uh, Maybe other kids were like playing video games or something entertaining, but my brothers and I would find these quartzite rocks on uh, the block where we lived, not small rocks, they were kind of big boulders, and we'd use a sledgehammer to smash them apart. What we were looking for was pyrite, or full, like commonly known as fool's gold, because sometimes in the middle of these quartzite boulders you'd find a vein of it. Um, when we did find the, find the fool's gold, um, we truly thought we'd had, we had struck gold. Um, you can imagine it's very exciting. But it wasn't until years later um, that I realised exactly what, why it was called fool's gold. I studied metal, metal crafts um, in college, in TAFE, and we, uh, we used precious metals and we cut them and soldered them and formed them into different shapes. And these metals were um, very malleable. Um, you could bring them to a high polish. You could create beautiful works of art out of them. When I was doing that with the precious metals, I realised that the, the pyrite, it's just impossible. It's, it's stiff and it crumbles, so there's no way that you could turn it into anything of beauty. It's just pathetic and useless when I actually compared it to the real precious metals. It was my hands-on experience with the precious metals that showed me the difference between the two. Paul's image of the perfect law-abiding Jew is the fool's gold, and the real gold is Christ. When we've discovered Christ and delight in Him, we see how useless the alternatives are. This truth changed everything for Paul, and this is how he walked away from his life's work. Everything, Paul says, is considered loss against the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. When we experience the knowledge of knowing Christ, any alternative pales, because the alternatives just cannot deliver what Christ can. So far, we've seen from Christ that knowing Christ, and uh, seen from Paul, sorry, that knowing Christ and rejoicing in Christ places us on a new trajectory. The old paths we used to tread crumble beneath us, the old truths we used to um, set our hearts so strongly on are just shattered and those old life goals that we used to aim for, we just realise how much they've missed the mark. Anything which seemed to be of value is just shown for the garbage that it is. And right up front, at the start of this passage, we heard Paul say that we're protected from that garbage when we rejoice in Christ. But how exactly does that work? Why would we rejoice? Uh, Doesn't rejoicing seem an odd way to avoid danger? If someone, if I was in the street and some thug came up and started threatening me, the usual thing that we'd do, and you'd know the saying, is it's fight or flight, right? If I was to stand there and just start dancing and clapping and rejoicing, anyone else watching the scene would think that's kind of weird and it probably wouldn't be very successful. The thing is, rejoicing would be an odd form of self-defence if the threat was only physical. 
But this threat to the Philippians, the threat to us, it's way more than that. It's a threat which will undermine the Philippians' worldview and corrupt their hearts and minds. The threats we face and the alternatives offered to us will do exactly the same. The threat is that we could place our confidence, our hope, our meaning in life in something other than Christ. And rejoicing in Christ is the perfect solution to safeguard our hearts and minds. We may not face physical persecution for our beliefs, but we'll definitely be offered alternatives to Christ that threaten to steal our hearts. Seeing that we have every reason for joy already in Christ protects us from being fooled into looking elsewhere. Rejoicing and delighting in Christ fortifies our hearts with the truth and protects us against those lies. It's kind of like Hercules fighting the Hydra. Uh, The Hydra was a Greek mythological monster that it was a scary beast which had multiple snake heads um, for its head, I guess. Um, And every time you cut off one of the snake's head, two more would pop out of the stump. That's like the deceptions that we're facing. If we stand and try and face all of the alternatives and cut them down, more will just keep appearing. We could spend all of our time trying to pick apart every alternative view to Christ, but we'll just, they'll just keep popping up. In the end, Hercules defeats the Hydra um, by using a golden sword that he's been given and finally lops off the immortal head. Well, rejoicing in Christ is effectively our golden sword. His truth shows the alternatives for what they are, empty lies, and he easily defeats them by revealing them as pure garbage as compared to him. So we've seen why Christ is better, and we've seen why rejoicing in Christ protects us. So how do we do it? How do we rejoice in Christ? Well, now we're going to look at that. The final thing I hope we can all walk away with remembering is this, that rejoicing in Christ means I want to know Christ and become like Him now and forevermore. So when I rejoice in Christ, I want to know Him and become like Him. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so, somehow, attaining to resurrection from the dead. Paul's wanting to know Christ is him delighting in Christ. It's him rejoicing in Christ. And did you see what rejoicing and delighting in Christ looks like? For one, it looks like knowing the power of his resurrection. Well, what does that mean? Like, what kind of power is this? Paul is referring to the power behind Christ's resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead, and that power through Christ is given to us. The resurrection confirms who Christ is, the Son of God. We're found in Him. We're part of the family of God. God has the power to forgive our sins and God has the power to transform us into the likeness of His Son. Knowing the power of the resurrection is not only knowing the resurrection happened, but what that means for us. And don't these things make you want to rejoice? Paul then goes on to say that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings and even be like him in his death. Well, what does this mean? Why would Paul want these things? Well, Christ sets our example. Knowing him and delighting in him and rejoicing in him means wanting to be like him. This is like we saw in chapter 2. Christ obeys God and serves others, even to the point of suffering for others and even to the point of dying on the cross for us. When we love Jesus, when we see just how amazing he is, 
it makes you want to be like him. They say you become like what you worship. I don't know if you guys have read Clive Hamilton before, but he's an Australian social commentator. And he said he's noticed that when people worship products or things, they actually begin to treat everything around them like products. And so um, even people become kind of disposable to them. When we rejoice in Jesus, we're going to become like him, laying down our lives for others. And doesn't becoming like Jesus again make you want to rejoice? When Paul says he somehow wants to attain resurrection from the dead, he's not saying that it's in doubt that it's going to happen. He's saying that it's a mystery how exactly it'll happen. Like, who can exactly know how God will do it? Science fiction fans' imaginations might go crazy at this point, imagining 3D printers or resurrecting people from DNA. But that's probably not quite what Paul's talking about here. What he is saying is that by knowing Christ... He will be resurrected himself, and there's no doubt about that. And it's knowing Christ that gives him that confidence. And here's the point. Only Christ can give us that confidence. And again, doesn't that make you want to rejoice? This life's not the end, no matter what's thrown at us. I want to finish just by thinking through a couple of ways we can help each other, help ourselves to rejoice in the Lord. I'm not rules for rejoicing, but some ideas of things that can help us. Here's some of the things that I've observed in older and wiser Christians. People who rejoice in Jesus, they spend their time getting to know Jesus. When we want to get to know someone, it's pretty normal to sit down and to listen to them. Find out where they've come from, what drives them. Christ isn't any different. Give yourself time to listen to him as you read his word and ask him to reveal himself to you. People who rejoice in Jesus, they dwell on God's promises in the gospel. The hope found in the promises of God restores us and dispels our fear. We have an almighty and sovereign God as our heavenly father and we'll dwell with him for, alternate, for all eternity. That's just awesome. How, how, how wonderful is that? The last way I've seen wise Christians rejoice in Christ is this, prayer. It's prayer as a normal first response to anything, praying for others, prayer for understanding when reading God's word, and prayer that the Holy Spirit would keep us rejoicing and growing in knowledge of Christ. I've found it hugely encouraging when I've been talking about some upcoming event and a Christian brother or sister it's just they're just like well let's pray about that and just we just pray then and there it's really good that kind of that's the thought pattern it's just well something's coming up let's pray to god that's the first thing to think of i find it super encouraging well keeping that in mind let's pray now that the holy spirit would enable us to continue rejoicing in christ um, now and forever father we just thank you so much for christ we thank you that um that his gift uh, on the cross, his resurrection, means that we can uh, be in your family and know you for eternity. Um, We just pray that you would um, help our hearts to continually rejoice um, in Christ and to keep our hearts and minds just fixed on Christ um, as we do everything, as we go out into the week, um, in everything that we do. Amen.